100 Moments That Rocked Computer Science with Professor Sue Black, OBE. Coming up, we'll hear all about an extraordinary innovation. It's software that's created the modern world in many ways. The challenges that led to its discovery. He ended up doing more hardware and she then brought in this idea of software. And the impact it has on our world and maybe our future. What you've got is effectively a superpower. Like, what are you going to do with it? All this and more as we explore another moment that rocks computer science. science. Moment number two, Ada Lovelace and the first computer program. Hi there, I'm Professor Sue Black and joining me as always is Professor Gordon Love, Head of Computer Science at Durham University. Hi Gordon. Hi Sue, how are you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Just enjoying running a a university department from my bedroom. I guess that's (laughs) the way a lot of people working at the moment, but yeah, spending my usual time on Teams and Zoom and what have you, which actually I... It's working pretty well, I have to admit for me. I'm I'm not minding it. I'm enjoying the no commuting and turning up for meetings in my pajamas and stuff. <laughs> Someone call HR. <laughs> Here at Durham, we're passionate about computer science, how it led us to where we are and where it will take us in the future. That's what we're here to talk to you about. In each episode, we're going to be sharing a moment from history that helped shape both computer science and the world around us. Today, we're going to be talking about Ada Lovelace and the first computer program. I'll be exploring the science behind the moment. And I'll be speaking to a special guest about just why it was so extraordinary. Don't forget, you can email us with any questions about today's episode or computer science at Durham using 100moments at durham.ac.uk. So, Gordon, what did Ada Lovelace do that rocked computer science? Uh, Ada Lovelace really did do some fantastic work which rocked computer science. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, critically, she was the first person who came up with the idea of software, of giving instructions to a computer. She came up with the idea that you'd have a machine that didn't necessarily always do the same job. It, it did different jobs depending on on what you wanted to do. She worked with Charles Babbage and he came up with a number of devices which were effectively the world's first computers. So Charles Babbage's analytical engine, I think there's one in the Science Museum in London and also one in the Computer History Museum in, in Mountain View in California. I've actually seen both of those and I've seen the one in Mountain View working, which was incredible. It was just like poetry in motion. From what I remember, I think I videoed it and hopefully I've still got that video somewhere. I must look it out and watch it again. It's just magical. I've not seen them, but, I, but, I'd, but I'd love to see them. I mean, maybe it's important to note that they're, they are uh, what we would now call an analogue computer. So the vast majority of our computers now are, are digital computers. They're based on on and offs and logic in a digital circuit. An analogue computer works in a, in a kind of different way. So a speedometer on your car is, a, is an analog computer. It, it, it analyzes how quickly your wheels are rotating. Yeah, It's a fixed device. That's an analog computer. And that's what the Charles Babbage works on. So let's chat a bit about logic and computer programs. What makes something go from being a logic statement to a computer program? The way I think I like to think about it 
is about words. A logic statement, if you like, is analogous to being a word in a book. And of course, words are, are important. You can have lots of studies of what words mean. It's when you put them together that you start to create interesting things. And, and likewise, when you put logic statements together, you can start to create a computer program that does something interesting or does something useful. Okay, so, so how does this relate to what Ada Lovelace did? Yeah, she was interested essentially in uh, looking at large numbers. And in particular, she was interested in what is known as Bernoulli numbers, which are which are series of numbers. I mean, there's lots of examples of, of series in mathematics. It's a, it's a really important topic that, that impacts on lots of different areas of maths and science. But let, 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 me, let me take a really simple example, okay? Let's imagine you want to calculate 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, on, 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 all the way up to plus 1,000. I mean, I think you can see if you want to do that with a calculator, it would be a right faff, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So a really basic and, I should say, inefficient way of doing this will be to start off with something like um, line one, write x equals zero. And then critically, we'd have line two, x equals x plus one. Line three, x equals x plus two. And we we keep repeating this. We keep writing more lines of code all the way up to a thousand. Well, that that actually sounds like some of the programs that I wrote when I started programming. So I think you know I think maybe that's the place that people start at when they they begin programming. But what's what's a better way to do that? So uh, the way we do this will be to start off again with line one, x equals zero. And now in line two, instead of saying x equals x plus one like we did before. We'd now say x equals x plus the loop number, where the loop number is the number of times you've passed this point uh, in the program. So this is the first time, so x equals x plus 1. Then line 3, well, this is where we create the loop. So we'd say go back to line 2. And this time in line 2, we'd be going through the loop for the second time. So we'd get x equals x plus 2. And so we keep going around the loop. Till you get to, to something where which tells you to stop, right? Yeah. I mean, loops exist in virtually all forms of programming language, and they're, and they're kind of really fundamental. It was a real insight of Ada Lovelace to realize you could program something and that you could have things like loops in the way you did things. It's kind of fundamental to the whole idea uh, of programming. So how did Ada Lovelace's program resemble software as we might write it today? I mean, physically, it didn't look anything like a modern program. I think what's really fascinating is that actually you programmed it using punch cards. Right. A punch card is literally that. It's a piece of cardboard which has holes punched inside it, uh, which give instructions. I, I was absolutely fascinated to learn that because I, I assumed it would be something really kind of uh, arcane. Yeah, it is amazing. I think most of the people I know that got into computing before I did have used punch cards at some point. And I'm a massive fan of knitting. And uh, knitting is all about zeros and ones and sort of loops in the pattern and stuff. And uh, I, I really think there's a, a big connection between programming and knitting. And I know that the, the jacquard loom that was used, but it was used to um, program knitting looms uh, back in the day a long time ago. So I think the, the punch card idea probably came from there. I think you're right. Yeah. Maybe more importantly than the differences, we should flag what are the similarities. And, and a loop is really important in, I mean, it's used in all different kinds of programming. It's a fundamental process in uh, in computing. So it was great that, that Ada Lovelace was able to foresee the use of things like this. I mean, she saw various other things. So things like tracking the state of a variable in a, in a program, many, many of the key features that we would consider as normal throughout modern day software. The other amazing 
foresight that she had was that not only might we use a computer to be able to process numbers, but maybe we'll use them for, for other things, images, words and sounds and so on. That's amazing. You know, it's software that's created the modern world in many ways and uh, fantastic that the first creator of software was a British woman. Woohoo! <laughs> This week's guest is Anne-Marie Imaphidon. Anne-Marie is the head of STEMETS, a social enterprise inspiring and supporting young women into STEM. I spoke to her to find out more about the first computer programme and the involvement of Ada Lovelace. Hi, Sue. Hi, Anne-Marie. How lovely to uh, see you, hear you. How's everything going? It's all right. I can't complain. I'm enjoying being at home. That's good. For a year. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's good that we're home buddies. Homebodies. Yeah, exactly. Introverts unite. Yeah, everyone thinks I'm really extroverted and I'm not really. I just, I just pretend I am. <laughs> I don't even pretend. So I don't know why they say, why they, why they assume. I've never pretended. I've always said I want to be a hermit and this was great. It's just I didn't plan for everyone to be hermiting at the same time, which takes the edge <laughs> off it, definitely. Hermits unite. We could start a movement there. This isn't another podcast for another day. <laughs> Right, well, so wonderful to have you on the show today. Can you tell us a bit about Ada Lovelace? So a bit about Ada Lovelace. So she's widely credited as the first computer programmer. She was an English uh, woman, the daughter of Lord Byron, um, from a really short-lived marriage that he had with someone else, and was called the Enchantress of Numbers. So she benefited from being a kind of high society kind of person, was kind of brought up well-to-do. But given that her dad was a poet, I think there was definitely this sense that we, you know, her mum <laughs> didn't want to be reminded of her dad every time she looked at her so uh pushed her instead to do more of the mathematics side of stuff which she she flourished with she really enjoyed amazing so she was about so she was born uh 10th of december 1815 in uh, our london she actually died sadly aged 36 yeah so young so young yeah so i think it was really like amazing that in fact her mum had her trained to be a mathematician because presumably that really wasn't a normal thing to do in those days. I mean, even now, <laughs> we're still, you know, we're still talking about girls and women in STEM and mathematicians and, and being in technology, and it's still an issue today. So back then, I think uh, a girl being trained up to be a mathematician was probably extremely rare. It was very rare, and this is why I kind of, I did talk about her privilege, because it is something of, I guess, sometimes if you've, if you've got enough agency or enough privilege then you can kind of buck some of the trends and do some of those kinds of things so it it wasn't imagined that you know she was going to have to to work very much or do anything like that you know she was she was born into that into nobility nobility there we go thank you (laughs) she's being a countess you know whatever she studied it was fine um and so maths maths um it is notable actually yeah you're right that 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 was something she was able to explore and enjoy. So she became friends with um, Charles Babbage. Do you know anything much about how that all happened? So she met Charles Babbage, uh, apparently through Mary Somerville, who, fun fact, I learned about Mary Somerville the other day, the term scientist was coined because of her, because she did a lot of science, yeah, but she wasn't a man of science, and that's what they were called before Mary. So they were like, we can't call her a woman of science. No. What should we call her? (gasps) Really? Wow, that's interesting. God forbid we call her a woman of science. (laughs) Sue here. 
interrupting our chat in case you were wondering who Mary Somerville was. She was one of the first women members of the Royal Astronomical Society and a famed science communicator. We can't have any women in science. No, let's call her a scientist. <laughs> okay. And so Mary Somerville was called a scientist. But anyway, either way, she was the tutor of Ada. And so she actually was the one that introduced Ada to Charles in 1833. Amazing. And they corresponded for many years and then eventually got, got to working together. And so what sort of work did they do together? So it turns out it's a lot of maths. They did a lot of maths, a lot of thinking, a lot of paperwork. She did some translations for him on particular papers. Um, but yeah, they ended up being kind of contemporaries um, and colleagues in that way. And she'd, I guess a lot of stuff was done by correspondence then, which now that I think about it, if I think back to my days doing maths, I think writing stuff down always makes it much easier and kind of clearer. So I wish I wish I could do, I wish I did university by correspondence sometimes when I look back because you can kind of see the notes. <laughs> then you wouldn't actually have to meet up with anyone. That would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, you're a quick learner. <laughs> could have stayed at home in London. But no, anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, so, she, so they did a lot of spy correspondence but actually did eventually meet up. And there were a lot of notes. I think this is the, this was a, their kind of way of communicating. She'd make notes on things from from Charles, bits that he'd thought about. He'd make notes on her bits. And so it was kind of a nice way of collaborating and working together. So, so there is a particular paper where Ada Lovelace came up with the idea of software. You know, like Babbage had these machines, like the analytical engine. There's a particular note G on a particular paper, which is uh, which Ada Lovelace is famous for. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? It's where the where the magic happened. So this was a, a note on um, some of his designs. So if we if we think about it in today's terms, it was kind of he was he ended up doing more hardware, and she then brought in this idea of software. Yeah. In note G, she ended up musing on how you might generate, for example, the Bernoulli numbers, which is a sequence of numbers. Um, used by mathematicians to add big groups of numbers, I guess is maybe the easiest way to describe it. It's a Taylor series for anyone listening who, who, who <laughs> loves that kind of thing. Love the Taylor series. Reminds me of college. Or loves number theory and, and adding numbers and processing numbers, which actually, funny enough, is what a lot of computer science has kind of helped us do, really. That's where we started with a lot of it. So there we go. Yeah. Part of the magic of Note G is also that she noted that, to be honest, you could probably use this analytical energy in to not just kind of calculate around numbers, but maybe across other things. She put down music, but of course the rest is history. We now know that we use computers to do pretty much everything. And so this was how she, you know, was the first computer programmer, I guess. She wrote a program for the first computer. First computer programmer was a woman. Woohoo. Boom, pow. <laughs> British woman as well, which I think we don't... A British woman. Yes, very good point. We don't actually make enough of a big deal about, do we? Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So what makes a computer program? Again, this is this is like a hotly contested. This is one that's like really well argued. Like, for me, it's a series of instructions that can be carried out by hardware. Yeah. If you're in our schooling system or if you're kind of new, you've got kind of pseudocode and other things like that, which can be translated into that series of instructions that a computer or a machine can kind of replicate and can do. And so, yeah, something that can be done by that computer, a series of instructions for a computer to carry out, really, is a computer program. Normally, it's, it's what we call deterministic. That's a long word, Amory. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a series of decisions. I guess that's what we can say. It's, determ it's deterministic. 
in that way. So so Ada Lovelace, I, I like when I did my degree, which is a very long time ago, we didn't learn about Ada Lovelace at all. You know, it's it's been great to see her celebrated over the last few years. And actually, I remember now, I, I think you were there as well. There was a meeting at 10 Downing Street, darling, a while ago, um, <laughs> where the, por- the portrait, the Ada Lovelace portrait that we see that hangs in um, 10 Downing Street. So I, I'm not quite sure. Do you remember like when Ada Lovelace started becoming more well known or have you always known about her I don't know so no I haven't um I know Sue Chomnard Anderson who we gotta get, gotta give her the shout out for for reviving this and making this a thing and driving that again from here into something that is international is global is huge yeah so she came up with Ada Lovelace Day right which didn't exist before yeah it it didn't and I know and I know Sue's been working on it for ages crowdfunds around it as well so it's definitely something that folks can get involved with and can support but yeah, no, I didn't know about her. And I think it's one of those things that frustrates me looking back and it kind of does mo- motivate me now for what I do, where, you know, she she didn't. I remember the first time I heard about Stephanie Shirley as well. I felt like yeah. anyone that had ever spoken to me about the 60s had been lying. I was like, what, miniskirts? <laughs> she was doing that. Who cares about miniskirts? Sue again. Dame Stephanie Shirley, who adopted the moniker Steve Shirley to sidestep industry sexism, was the world's first freelance computer programmer. She set up one of the UK's earliest tech startups in 1962. A good year. And so I think it's one of those, one of these sad things that I'm glad as every day passes that is no longer really part of how we do things, which is that her story has come back to prominence. In fact, I saw the painting just two weeks ago because we did a thing with Number 10 and they sat with them, with her like purposely over her shoulder for International, yeah, cool. yeah for International Women and Women and Girls in Science Day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's now, she is now that national treasure. I think we need to get her on a banknote or something like that to kind of fully cement it fully. But she's she's got the blue plaque. But I think it's an interesting one where this history of STEM that I always end up talking about has been lost, right? So we've got all these kind of, if it's not hidden figures, they're kind of, in this country in particular, that series of, you know, not just the one woman or the lone star that we almost default to talking to but you know like you obviously know the ladies at Bletchley but you know the ladies that work with with um, Stephanie Shirley you know we've had quite big groups of women do a lot of computation and even if it's punch cards or you know you've seen in the films the kind of telephone exchange you know we've always been technical we've always been there those stories haven't necessarily been told we haven't necessarily always been able to kind of take the story of the lone woman but I think it's it's been really heartening to see you know, folks getting behind it and people now being able to name Ada as much as they're naming Marie Curie or any of the others so we can show that, you know, this isn't a new thing. It's not just this generation or the generation ahead, but we've got quite a strong heritage, quite a strong kind of legacy to step into as technical women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's so many women and I kind of, you know, it's like when people ask me if I'm being interviewed, who were your like women role models in tech growing up? I don't think I knew about any, you know, and I'd, even women scientists, Marie Curie, that might be it because their stories just weren't out there. And so that's one of the great things, I guess, over the last probably decade, really, is that everyone's interested in these stories now. and We are sort of bringing them um, to light and celebrating people who've had a massive impact on the world or women who've had a massive impact on the world who we just hadn't even heard of. Uh, before exactly who'd been who'd been consciously hidden and erased so yeah, yeah the next the next thing is for kind of media 
to kind of take it on fully and properly, whether it's Hollywood or whether it's here in the UK, for us to take on and tell these stories alongside yeah. the stories of the usual suspects, shall I say. Has Ada Lovelace inspired you in your career, do you think? I think I think in some ways, yeah. I think that I have a feeling, I have a little bit of an affinity with her and that she was a mathematician. I'm a mathematician and a computer scientist. And it's so funny, kind of, I remember seeing it as an option and being like, yeah, this is me because I like the tech and I like the maths. But of course, lower down in school, they don't really get taught together. And people do say, if you're good at maths, you'll be good at tech. But even, you know, until I started the degree and saw the overlap, it was never immediately obvious why that might be something that might be a benefit. So I think for me with Ada, I can imagine her getting lost in the maths. Right. I didn't I didn't correspond with anyone on my maths. I spoke to them. That's how we did university at the time that I was at university. But I can imagine, you know, you get lost in the theories, you get lost in the, oh my goodness, you could do this, and then that can apply in that way. And what? So I think for me, I think there's definitely that affinity of A being in England. She's also a Londoner, like I am, and like a lot of really great people are. <laughs> I'm not from nobility necessarily. Oh yeah, no, I'm not really either. Um and I'm I'm not a countess. Yet. <laughs> Yeah, never say never. But I think there is definitely something of... There's a beauty in logic, even though she wasn't necessarily a role model for me growing up, and she's not necessarily someone I'd have at the top of my list at the moment. I think there is something about... There's something honest and something simpler about a life with maths that I think a lot of people miss out on because of their experience with in school, that I feel like Ada and I have that. You know, we're mathematicians and computer scientists who love that application of logic. Can you imagine a world without computer programs now? Like, what on earth would that look like? I can and I can't, you know? I think it's quite funny. And I'm, I'm so I'm working on a book at the moment and it's quite interesting because I kind of start off by saying, yeah, imagine a world without computers. And it's been quite interesting to kind of look through and say, do you know what? Technology has impacted so many things. Uh, and that's technology kind of pre-computer, shall we say. But now that we've got the computers and we've got the algorithms, I think there is something to be said for the fact that they're not 100%. There's so much still that we need to figure out for us to actually get to what good looks like. That I can, I can imagine, even if I'm not imagining a life or a world without computers, I can imagine a life or a world where computers do all that we know they can do. Whereas at the moment, I do feel like the potential technology has been limited and has been hindered by our lack of understanding, by, you know, having bad actors, by like poor funding models, all that kind of stuff. Lack of diversity in people creating software. Yeah, basically. And 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 having the right diversity, the knock-on effect is that you have something that, you know, doesn't wind us up and you're like, oh gosh, computers, ha, huh? kind of thing <laughs> every time, right? Yeah. Things like that. I'm like, do you know what? As much as I don't want to imagine a life without computers at all, I do often end up imagining a life where things just work and they solve more problems than they create and they improve on what we have now rather than trying to maintain a status quo. And I think that's what drives me every morning is kind of getting to that point where we get, I don't know, computers that we deserve is the wrong thing, but the computers get what they deserve. <laughs> Not bad for the computers. Um, but, you know, when they get what they deserve, which yeah. is, you know, we've written this right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not going to crash. Like, we, it just doesn't crash. It just doesn't break. <laughs> We're not going to be annoyed at the user because they clicked on the wrong thing in the wrong order. But also this computer doesn't put innocent people behind bars. Like, there's all this stuff where it's like, you know, these programs didn't ask to be written. Hmm. 
Like I think a lot of the time people forget that people, particularly that aren't involved in creating technology, forget that computers are programmed by people. And so actually a lot of the, you know, like the the bias, the decision-making going on, is it's not actually the computer doing it. The computer's following the instructions or the software that was written by people to program it. Exactly. It doesn't know if it's creating a jam sandwich or putting someone in jail. It really doesn't know. It didn't intend to do one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about people studying computer science now uh, and in the future, can you sort of sum up in a nutshell what the legacy of Ada Lovelace is in terms of what they're studying and their future? I think the simplest way to look at the legacy of what she said is, if we look back at that note G, she saw potential in it, right? She saw, she she wasn't able to enumerate everything that we've got now, but she saw it and was like, do you know what? If you could do this, you could do that. You could apply it to music, you could apply it beyond numbers. And so I think there is something for computer scientists to think about this now and to think beyond themselves and think beyond the immediate and think beyond the obvious, which I think applies in lots of different ways, right? So it's not just thinking, you know, beyond numbers and think to music and think to whatever else, but it's also thinking beyond yourself, right? If that's what it can do for you, what can it do for others that aren't like you? What you've got is effectively a superpower. Like, what are you going to do with it, right? You've got a really powerful tool. What are you going to do with it? There are so many problems in the world. Which one are you going to choose to solve using your knowledge of computer science? Or how are you going to further computer science so the leap to solving those problems isn't as big as it is now? And I think as an inspirational side of things, that's always what I always want computer scientists in particular to pick up and get. Because as someone that studied that, when you're studying it, that's not what's at the forefront of your mind. Unless you're studying it at Durham, where we've worked on the curriculum <laughs> and made sure that we've got... That students do, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or one of one of the other colleges that we work with to, to kind of get to that point. Yeah. It's not baked into it, right? No. It's computer science for computer science sake. True which is all well and good until someone has to go out into the real world and do something. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it ends up being something where you, you know, without any pressure too much on computer science students or anyone who's studying it, I think there is something to think. Think beyond the, the textbook, think beyond yourself. And how can you be altruistic? How can you be magnanimous with this rather than adding to the series of problems that we already had and the series of problems that have been created by the technology that we've made? And so I think it's quite important for students to kind of to consider that and to think about that much, 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 much more than our curricula and our syllabuses currently allow for yeah. as default. No, that's really, really exciting. You know, computer science, you're not just studying it for the computer science, but you're the people who are going to create the future. You're powering the future. And so you think about that future, you know. I gave this example earlier, kind of was trying to explain algorithms to someone was talking about, you know, if you have something that makes sandwiches and you have like this feedback loop of like, you know, every time a jam sandwich is returned, you see what sandwich people want instead. And I was like, yeah, you have to think, is it just sandwiches that people have for lunch? Like if you were going to think outside of yourself, think outside of your locale, you might have fish and chips, you might have something completely different. So it's like, do we always need to make sandwiches? Like, does it have to only be sandwiches? Yeah, exactly. And that is exactly it. Coming back to the beginning, that's exactly what Ada Lovelace did for us. Think outside the box. You know, we don't always have to yeah, eat just jam sandwiches. You can do music, <laughs> you can have numbers. Yeah. So I think I think that's her legacy. Her legacy is these wide applications. And I think I think that's the only thing that makes me sad about being a technologist is sometimes when you see what people are applying this for, you think, you know, with all the money and all the resource in the world. Is that really, is that really what we needed? Do we really need to 
dig a hole to the center of the earth? Is that really what we needed? When people are hungry, when people are suffering, like there's so much more that we could be doing. So, yeah. Technology gives you the power to see the potential of what we could actually do in the world and the problems that we could solve. So, so everyone should study technology so that there's people from all different backgrounds coming together to solve those big problems rather than exactly you know, creating more problems. And that's not what she wrote in Note G. She didn't say, let's make more problems. <laughs> She was like, let's apply this to our problems. It's a legacy of ATA. <laughs> Make solutions, not problems. That's no G. <laughs> oh dear. Thanks very much, Anne Marie. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Thanks for having me. Well, that was wonderful, wasn't it, to hear from Anne-Marie there. She's, she's just fun in herself, <laughs> as well as learning more about Ada Lovelace. Fantastic hearing the rapport between you two. I mean, she's been on our external advisory board at Durham for a number of years now and has been such, a, such an influential figure in, in the development of computer science at Durham. Yeah. Just amazing to hear the, the history be, behind that. Again, we're, we're completely used to the idea nowadays of having a machine that does something and then a separate piece of stuff software that tells it yeah. what to do. Um, yeah. But that was a real, you know, a breakthrough idea. Having this distinction between hardware and software was a fundamental step forward really in the, well, in the whole development of human thought. And for those thinking about studying computer science, Gordon, is this something they'll get to learn about if they choose to come to Durham? Yeah, absolutely. If you come to Durham, there's a, one of the major modules in our, in our second year is a software engineering. How do you design software in a uh, in an efficient and sensible fashion. Awesome. That's what my PhD's in. So <laughs> I love that area. So what what are you up to now, Gordon? Um, still got a little bit of daylight left. Might get out for a walk. Even getting that time of year, I might get out on my bike. Cool. And, and maybe take some photos. Your photos of the countryside near where you live are amazing. Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Don't forget, we want to hear the moments that rocks your world of computer science. You can email us using 100moments at durham.ac.uk or tweet us at 100momentscs. We might even use your ideas in the next series. Tune in next time for another moment that rocked computer computer science. 100 Moments That Rock Computer Science was a Wider the Chicken production for Durham University. It was presented by Professor Sue Black OBE and Professor Gordon Love and featured the voice of Otis Dealey. With thanks to our brilliant guest, Anne-Marie Imaphidon. The researcher was Dr. Craig Stewart, the producer, Redzi Bernard, and the executive producer, Dan Page. If you enjoyed the show, please do three lovely things for us. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and tell a friend. Tell a friend.